0: You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everyone, welcome to the Phronesis Podcast. Wherever you are in the world, thanks for tuning in. Very much appreciated. Three guests today. I have Dr. Donna Ladkin. Uh, She is an internationally recognized leadership and ethics scholar whose philosophically informed publications explore aesthetic, ethical, and embodied aspects of organizing and leading. Her theoretical work is underpinned by a strong commitment to the realm of practice and is informed by extensive consulting experience in both public and private organizations. Her current research focuses on exploring the structural and organizational dynamics which limit follower and leader agency within organizations, particularly in relation to their desire to act ethically. Her work is published in the top journals across the globe, and we are excited to have her with us. We also have Dr. Cherie Bridges-Patrick. She is a leadership coach and educator, consultant, clinical social worker, and founder of Paradox Cross-Cultural Consulting, Training, and Empowerment, LLC. Cherie combines Nearly 12 years of trauma experience with relational neuroscience to heal racial and social trauma, repair and build relationships with the goal of normalizing generative justice-centered dialogue. Dr. Patrick has extensive experience in community mental health and engaging with immigrant families around the complexities and trauma of global displacement and resettlement. Her research examined how subtle and nuanced racial dominance was reproduced by justice-seeking professionals in day-to-day workplace discourses. She has also co-authored publications around racial dominance and racial justice in leadership. We also have Dr. Marion Missy-McGee. She is a research practitioner who specializes in expanding and reframing conventional narratives to create more equitable leadership ecosystems. As an organizational strategist, she administers the design, implementation, and evaluation of domestic and international programmatic initiatives for the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Marion's scholarly research contributes to closing the gap between race and leadership through a multidimensional lens while amplifying lesser-known histories, increasing unexplored narrative exemplars, and providing greater empirical evidence from the vantage point of African-American leaders. Now, we are going to begin today our conversation. Cherie and Donna have just had an article published, and I think we're going to Talk about this article today, and that's really where we're going to start our conversation. But then we're going to also move into some paths forward from what was discussed in the article. And the article was just published in the journal Leadership. So we're going to provide you a link in the show notes. The article is titled, Whiteness in Leadership Theorizing, a Critical Analysis of Race in Bass's Transformational Leadership Theory. I am so excited for this conversation. Cherie, Donna, maybe the two of you could share a little bit about the source of this paper. How did this paper come about? And then maybe we can explore some of the major contents that you think listeners would be interested in.
1: So first of all, Scott, thanks so much. and It's a delight to be with you this afternoon and a delight to um, be sharing the platform with uh, my two good friends and colleagues. Uh, Sheree and Missy as well. So I'm just really pleased to be here. What I wanted to say by by way of starting off and thinking about how we came to write this paper is just to say that my own work, I'm a very, I call myself a reluctant leadership scholar. I, my own work has pretty much been around problematizing kind of conventional and traditional ways of looking at leadership and how leadership has been theorized. So I think as much time that I spent trying to think about what leadership is, I've tried to think about how traditional ways of thinking about leadership actually don't work. And so I've really kind of taken a very critical stance in looking at much uh, leadership theorizing. More recently, my my critical eye has turned to the way in which race is, is very rarely actually spoken about within leadership theorizing. But at the same time, it's very much there in terms of much theorized, leadership theorizing is written from a particular racial perspective, and that is a, a white perspective. And I've actually started to look at, well, what does that mean? And how can we expose that? And also, if that is true, then what should we be looking at as well as uh, kind of white models of theorizing? What other kinds of ways should we be looking at this phenomena that would bring in a more, which wouldn't just be looking at it from this white perspective? That's really where my, how my work has developed to the point of writing this paper. And when Sheree and I, Sheree and I share a passion for critical discourse, analysis and for looking at the ways in which language both illuminates but also hides. Yes. And the way in which when we use language, any language that we use is only the tip of the iceberg in terms of many assumptions, power dynamics, and other relationships that underpin it. Uh, Cherie's going to talk about her own work, I'm sure, in, in a bit. But, you know, just to say that we we share this passion. And so one way of starting to address what's going on in leadership theorizing was to take critical discourse analysis, looking at theories of leadership that we, you know, generally just don't even think about in terms of what's underneath them and actually start unpacking them uh, from a critical race perspective. So, that I'll, I'll, I'll stop there and let Cherie come in and, and tell her part of the story.
0: I learned so much reading this article. And I think, Donna, you summarized it beautifully uh, illuminates, but also hides. Mm. And it, it, what hit me yesterday on the couch as I read a passage to my wife saying, Oh my gosh, wow. And, and so I think that illuminates, but also hides, it just, it's really a powerful statement. It is because mm-hmm. you're helping me see things I hadn't seen.
1: It's really interesting because I, as I was thinking about this conversation yesterday, I was out on a walk and, and thinking about this conversation. And one of the things that I was thinking about is, you know, with, with theorizing of any kind, it's important to ask, you know, whose purposes are served, By the person doing theorizing, you know, whose purpose is there, you know, when we think about leadership theorizing, some of the, you know, older leadership theories, like, you know, literally great man, leadership theorizing, you know, and what purpose or whose purpose that serves? And of course, that whole theory serves the purposes of of a ruling class. Yep. where the idea is that leaders are born, not made, and you can pass this ability to be a leader down through generations. And, and basically that's who is supported by great man theory. And if you go through you know, every theory, it is actually serving someone's purpose. And so for me, doing this kind of analysis is really important because then it begs the question, okay, first we have to understand what purpose is being served. And then we can think about, do we want to align ourselves with that? <laughs> You know, is there another purpose we want to be serving? And maybe we should look to those kinds of theories instead.
0: So, Cherie.
2: Thank you for the invitation to be here. And thank you, Donna, for summarizing that. That was just a beautiful, and and I'm glad that you highlighted, Scott, the the ways that language discourse both illuminates and hides. Um, You've already spoken about my research a little bit, because what it did was really look at what was happening underneath the words, right? And, and and in my research, I was able to pull out some themes and some discourses that um, were uh, that that traced uh, um, uh, conversations, just day to day conversations of social workers, justice seeking social workers, really, right. And and so it it found all these subtleties, all these nuances of race, right, and and racial dominance just operating all the time. It was just like when when you pull it out, it just becomes so obvious, right? What what happens is, uh, like Donna said, there's a way that language and discourses foreground things, right, and make things very obvious, uh, and in a way that it um, backgrounds things that it does, you know. And, and this is all about the whiteness, right? How yeah. how it operates, right, to foreground and background. And so, yes, this is where where Don and I have a shared passion, and we've had so many lively conversations around how whiteness operates. It's always there, and I'm starting to look at, at whiteness as an embodied right? The somatics of of whiteness. And so um, that's a conversation
0: I'd love to have at some point. Well, maybe the two of you could, uh, to begin, you're setting your sights on transformational leadership. And Mm. what were some insights that maybe the two of you hadn't expected to discover as you began really exploring?
1: So I think to start with, I just like to honor the work of uh, Helena Liu, who is one of the you know, first leadership scholars to really start to tackle this area. And I think it was a paper that she wrote looking at Australian philanthropists and how different habits of whiteness were apparent in the way in which these philanthropists were represented, both in text, but also pictorially. And that work made us start to think, oh, could we do a similar thing but looking at leadership theory. And I think we started off wanting to tackle all leadership theory, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just go one by one. (laughs) You probably find some themes. Yes. Yeah.
1: But it became clear that we needed to, to really do, I mean, the the beauty of discourse analysis and I don't know if Sheree wants to come in here, but it is about looking at specific bits of text. Yeah. So it's not about generalities. It is about looking at the very specific bits of text and diving deeply into that text. And so we decided that we would focus on transformational leadership. I think, again, this came from an article written by two other scholars working in the field, Erica Foldy and Sandra Ospina. And they wrote a wonderful paper, which I know also informed Missy's work, uh, which was looking at, race in leadership and how it's theorized. And they were the first ones that brought to my attention some of the ways in which Bernard Bass was talking about race and leadership. And the way that he was talking about it was just, I read it, and this was his last text that he wrote in 2008. And of course, his earlier works on transformational leadership, some of the most well-cited and, you know, his book is basically one of the bibles of leadership theory and then looking at some of the things that he was writing in relation to you know his sense making about why there were fewer african-americans in positions of executive leadership in the u.s and attributing this to lower iq scores on the part of african-americans and it's my my talk about somatic reaction i was reading his work and my heart was beating really fast and thinking oh no and this is written in 2008
0: yes and you all you all come out strong with that analysis right out of the gates that just caught my attention i thought wow i yeah. and again to the to the to the point of you know what's going on underneath the words you all do a beautiful job of taking even a, a paragraph or a passage and illuminating hey you need to see this and I hadn't seen it does, yeah. does that make sense
2: it, can I can I jump in here
1: please good at doing this
2: um, I, I've, I've have learned over the last you know several years to not get surprised at some of at the ways that a whiteness makes itself known. Um, But I I was actually surprised by some of this. And I was just fascinated at how um, leadership has gone on so long without pulling this out and saying, like, wait a second here, because, you know, to me, it's like very obvious. You're making these global statements about people and and their intellectual uh, capacity, and nobody is challenging that and, and I shouldn't say nobody, but that was that was not a part of the challenge. And so for me, that was like, oh my goodness. Yes. And so then having this opportunity to dig deeper with Donna and these bits and pieces. Um and, and I I was just fascinated at how, you know, how boldly some of these statements, these claims were being made.
0: Well and and to your point, boldly, right, Missy?
3: I would just say just in it, with respect to what Shree mentions and I think going going back to the importance of what Donna said the need to problematize mm-hmm. what has been theorized thus far even not being able to go theory by theory but just looking at <laughs> leadership theorizing as a whole that there there is such a need and that that the fact that bass's work has gone unchallenged mm-hmm. but at the time and it's pointed out in their article i pointed out in in my research as well that this is November of 2008. This is mm-hmm. at the moment that the United States elects its first black president. So wow. he's drafting and writing this at a time where mm-hmm. as a country, you know, the collective sentiment is that mm-hmm. somehow we've come to a different place in society and we're we're starting to view leadership through a different lens and and then you have the person who's held up as, you know, is regarded as this guru of leadership theory that is kind of turning that on its face. And I think the fact that it's, we're now almost 12 years removed from that moment, and it's still now starting to mm-hmm. be challenged. It's still now starting to be called out. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say that leadership theory is undergoing a time's up moment just yet, but there there certainly is all indication that there's a need to really, really, I think, I think interrogate this notion of how whiteness has been, like you like Cherie said, so assumed to be it's almost a synonym for leader. That has never been the case, but we we need the empirical data to support that why those things aren't true. So a lot of what I bring to the conversation is around I can give you examples, I can give you the the actual through critical discourse analysis, the actual Example or supporting documentation that puts Bass's work, at, it shows the problematic nature of his work. And I think that's something that we have to encourage as a field. We have to encourage this to happen more and more often because if it's presented as if no other leaders exist or no other perspective of leadership exists, then it's assumed that, well, we would esteem leaders of color but they're just not out there which has too long been the excuse that's used well we would you know diversify the inputs of what what share but they just don't exist and so a part of what i'm doing is making sure no they they do exist and they've existed for some 60 years and this is this is the evidence of it Say more it, it's it's several things i share uh, donna's opinion i think this notion of Whose purposes, I wrote this down, whose purposes are actually served? The question of whose purpose is being served by the ways in which these theories are presented. And I take that a step further to say whose purposes are being served by the way certain narratives are presented? Yeah. Uh, In the ways in which narratives of leadership are presented as the great white man theory. And because, going back to something Cherie said, the because the language is already situated in a way to keep certain people in a supreme position and others to be to be looked at or viewed as non-dominant, then it, it already creates an atmosphere where there's an expectation that, again, if leaders are born and not made, that if you're not born into this space or your narrative doesn't fit the narrative that's presented, then you're not eligible to be considered when we theorize even what it takes to lead organizations effectively. And so I think that was for for me, the discovery of like we, in finding, I I share this in my work, like in looking for leadership theory to help support or, or characterize what I saw Black leaders doing in the 1950s and 1960s, before a lot of these theories even were fully established, there was nothing that really fit. And then when you try to fit their experience of being community-centered, their experience of being very distributive in their leadership style, very participatory, very relational, decades and eons before these things were established theoretically, how do you then say that because they did not have the narrative of experience that is proposed as the way in which leadership occurs, what then of these organizations that have been in existence for this long, Yeah. What, how then do you understand what profitability and success looks like from a different experience or a different narrative lens? So I want to
2: jump in here and just support what Missy is saying from the article that, that we've written. You're talking about solipsism. And so we talk about the habits, three habits of whiteness in this uh, leadership theorizing, and solipsism is this tendency for whites and the function of whiteness to act in ways that only benefits them. So when you talk about who's, you know, who's benefiting from this, this is what solipsism does, and it's this circular notion of, you know, let's do this work, and it always seems to come back to benefit this one
0: particular group. You just call that out, Missy. Thank you. Perhaps unknowingly, but does does that make sense? Yes or no? <laughs>
3: what do you think? <laughs> Challenge absolutely, me. Absolutely right? unknowingly. I, I, think to, I think to some extent there is the both and it's not either or it, it really is this notion of, and this is where we get into this notion of systematic, then it, it's it's so ingrained in our systems. It's so ingrained in our ways of discourse. It's so ingrained in our, it, it, we're so conditioned to it that to challenge it. And, and this is not just true now. I think this was true in 2008. This was true in 1988. It was true when, when critical race theory emerged in, in the late 70s, that to even address race and leadership is, is something that people distance themselves from, mm. which is indicative of this notion of the theory of self that that for that slopsism that My experience does not require me to consider race because my experience is the dominant experience. So I don't even, I'm not even presumed to think about this experience from someone else's perspective. And I think all of us can relate experiences of leading where race became a factor, not just gender. Race and gender can become a factor and making that, making the case for how you talk about that how you work through that when it's presumed that that's not even a factor when it yeah. comes to leading effectively.
0: Yeah, when it's presumed that it's not even a factor.
1: Yeah, for me, if I can come in there, there's no better example of that than when you start looking at a theory like authentic leadership theory, <laughs> which you know is all about you know, if you look at authentic leadership theory the way it's been theorized by people I, I mean it is theorized in different ways so I don't want to say that all authentic leadership theory theorizes it this way but the dominant way in which authentic leadership is theorized which is by the which is uh Avoglio, who in fact was a was who worked with Bass for quite a long time you know it's this idea that you you know the the leader is their true self and I have never spoken to a person of color for whom they can say, "Oh yeah, I can be my true self, and that'll be fine." <laughs> Especially oh. in different organizational contexts where you know that just won't work. <laughs> you know, and yet authentic leadership theorizing theorizes as if you know that's okay because again, it's available it be, to all. Yeah, it's available right? to all. When in fact, you know, we just we just know, and I, I think recently, I, I can't. I think there's been even some commentary from. Um, the former President Obama himself talking about how race played into his own you know, experience of being, quote unquote, the most powerful man in the world. <laughs> and yet, you know, because of his skin color, uh, he experienced that differently than perhaps others might have done. I want to
2: jump in on something that you said, Donna, you know, you taught, you brought in authentic leadership theory, right? And this notion of being oneself. Well, if we are honest, if we look at this whole notion of whiteness, right, what it does is it keeps everybody away from being their true selves because we don't look at race as a factor, right? Because whiteness pushes us to to look narrowly. But in that process of, of exclusion, white folks are our pushed into a systemic process that makes them follow a certain rubric or, or fall into a certain template of acting, of responding. And so they can't be authentic either, right? So everybody loses when we talk about this harm that whiteness brings.
1: I think that's a really important point. We probably should have made it at the very beginning of this conversation, Scott, that you know, when we're talking about whiteness here, we're not talking about skin color. So this is really important to say that for, for those people listening on the podcast, this is not about whiteness, Is not about skin color. Whiteness is about a constellation of assumptions and systemic ways of operating, which mean that, People relate to each other in certain ways based on skin color. So skin color does play a role in it, but that's not what whiteness is. Not just about skin color, and white people those those people with white skin are just as affected and harmed. I think Cherie's done quite a lot of work looking at the harm that whiteness does to white people as well as people of color. So I think that's important to notice that it's it's not about just skin color. It's about systemic way of structuring relationship
0: really well, you will right. highlight that in the paper beautifully that that look this is not this this harms all mm-hmm. these assumptions the, what what we illuminate and what is hidden harms everyone yeah. on a certain level
2: right and, and i want to be clear Right, because there are obvious, right, obvious historical continual harms that occur to Black and Brown and Indigenous bodies, and yes. bodies that are not white. Yeah. Right, and and, and it, there's a different level of harm. There's a different impact of harm. I do not in any way want to minimize that because that's not what we're doing. Yeah. We're saying there's harm across the across the board. However, it impacts differently, and yeah. the ways that it impacts white bodies is that it seems to. To flow down into the soul and create a disconnect from wow. humanity. And then that means that white bodies tend to look at, at black bodies and, and brown bodies as inhuman. And, and so that's the harm that it creates a disconnect from one's body and then collectively, uh, from one's body and soul, and, and collectively, one group to another.
0: Would you talk a little bit more about that? A disconnect with humanity.
2: Mm. Mm. In in order for whiteness to operate, it needs people to buy into it. And in order to buy into it, you must subscribe to a certain standard, a certain uh, way of living. And that means that you must disregard a certain part, of not only yourself, but other people. Mm. Right. And so as you operate, you're, you're not looking at the harm that is happening as you move up the ladder. You know, while one is stepping on my, while you're stepping on my neck to get there, you're missing that. Is about moving forward, moving upward for this one group of, of people, which is harmful in and of itself.
3: I I'm just co-signing because I I think that that you said so much. It's so rich to think about the harm, the shared harm, the mutual harm that's done, and that it's it's really important to understand that we're not talking simply about skin color in a in a simplified way. That skin color does play into, but these these the cultural complexity. Of When we talk about an organizational culture and what, what came to mind when you said the harm that whiteness can do in terms of the dehumanizing is that even for uh, when we talk about the social black leadership or, or authentic leadership, excuse me, that among, say, a, a leader of color, I mean, use an African-American leader, but any leader of color, that the notion of being articulate or the notion of being well, well read or well traveled is somehow contextualized as white, or mm. or culturally related as white, or or an embodiment of whiteness, and that if I'm speaking in an articulate way, that somehow I'm not being my authentic self, or that there and and this this happens in many organizational contexts where it's like, oh, but you can let your hair down, you can you know you can you can do this 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 and this, and it's like, well, but this is me. <laughs> And so the the disconnect of allowing individuals to be their full selves, whatever that full self shows up as in that organizational context, that it robs us of really seeing each other in the depths of who we are, regardless of our skin color. And that if we don't start to really expand our view, and that's, that's what I mean by reframing a narrative and, re, you know, mm. making room for other narratives, mm. if we're not understanding that people's lived experiences really have a lot more in common than they do in, you know, indifference to each other, but if we're not making room for those experiences to inform how mm. we lead or inform how mm. we make opportunity or space for others to lead, then that assumption, that systemic way of viewing only those who fit this one embodied perspective of whiteness, then it limits so much of what potentially could be just much more fruitful, much more profitable. When I say profitable, not just in the terms of revenue, bottom line profitability, or you know, uh, realized value, but actually intrinsic value of, of how organizations move and grow together that function of what, what we've seen in the last two years of people making, you know, the decision to separate from organizations and say, you know, the value of the quality of life that I want, the things that I, that I need, it's not worth kind of the performative nature, the the stress or the strain of having to perform in a space. Yep. If I can't bring my full self and full experience to that space, that's a part of understanding how much we radically need to interrogate this notion of whiteness as as leading because it's mm. it, it it damages and harms in ways that i think will still continue to play out the thing that came to mind we were talking about like where we are in the the great resignation and kind of how organizations are struggling to rebuild workforce and seeing kind of this influx of white males back in the workforce versus non-white males seeming to be not not returning in the numbers that they were pre-COVID, pre-2020. And some of that does rely on this notion of, is it worth what I give up in order to show up in these spaces? Mm. And then some Mm. people are making the choice and informed by, if I can create my own or if I can carve out a space where I can be more fully myself or feel more seen and feel like my humanity is taken and valued greatly, then I would rather do that than than continue to function in an organization that treats me as less than because I don't fit the mold that the the system has created.
1: I know we're coming to the kind of end of our time together. And before we ended, I, I really didn't want to miss the opportunity to to talk a little bit about to get to invite Missy really to talk a little bit about more about your own research into what you did looking at black museum leaders and how they brought a different approach to leading into their space. Both I, th- I think for me the, the finding that you had around generativity was really important. And also, I just wanted to highlight your work. It starts from a different position, really. In much traditional leadership, there is the expectation that you that the leader is in a position of power. They They have positional power, mm-hmm. which they are then able to use in a particular way. But I think for the leaders that you were working with, they didn't necessarily have that positional power, and yet were able to be so effective. So I think your study really shows us, you know, it kind of turns on its head a lot of assumptions about, about leadership. And I, I just really would love to hear you expand on that bit before we have to go.
3: Thank you, Donna. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of just coming at the notion of leadership from a different perspective, it really, it, and it, I think it, it links to this notion of who's eligible to lead. Who has what's what is necessary to lead. And I looked uh, at six different leaders uh, in center, six different organizational contexts, all, I guess, united by the fact that they were founders or executive leaders of African-American museums, because that's, of course, my field. Mm-hmm. But the uniqueness of their experience one, these are leaders that cover three different generations. So these are these are leaders who came up in a in a racially segregated society. So the notion that they were or advancing history and culture as a narrative to be shared, many of them at, you know, working kind of as educators by night, <laughs> trying to educate their local communities about the rich history and culture of the of African Americans. That was a subversive act in and of itself. We talk about the present day culture wars that we're undergoing, but keeping in mind that culture wars in the 1950s, that was in the McCarthy era. These were leaders of the McCarthy era that were trying to lead in a space where they were considered, you know, revolutionary. They were considered to be basically at odds with the the government or the system by which society was operating under. So this notion of trying to institutionalize that history, meaning create spaces where it could be shared and passed on from generation to generation, was in and of itself a subversive act. It wasn't Mm -hmm. something that they necessarily were supported in doing. And in in operating in a way that they needed to depend on the local community support to build a grassroots effort and then to to grow those organizations over time, such that they're still standing today, they're still profitable today, they're still able to to be anchors or, or resources within the six different communities they serve, that in and of itself comes with a reliance on community. And this is where kind of the generativity part the reliance on being very, very open and generative in how this information gets shared Mm -hmm. and not leading to compete with someone else, not leading to outrun or outpace another organization, but they talk about in their own narratives, the need to convene with one another, to share resources anytime they were successful in getting, you know, National Endowment for Humanities money or National Endowment for the Arts money, any type of funding to share that across other institutions so that others could also benefit from what they've gained or what they were benefiting from. And that area or that approach to leading being something that you don't see presented in in theories of leadership. You can be successful and generative in your approach, but also help and support and sustain other institutions or like-minded institutions Um, and make no mistake that in grant funding or nonprofit management, you're competing for funding it on a regular basis. So it wasn't as if there was not a notion that, you know, there's only so much money to go around, but that, that there was an understanding that by growing and supporting one another that across the field all the institutions could benefit when that it didn't have to just be one winner, one leader on top. And that that's a notion of leadership, I think, that still deserves a lot more credence as we start looking at ways we the ways in which we theorize leadership differently.
0: I would love maybe for each one of us to just close out with something we want to leave listeners with. It could be something uh, provocative. It could be something you're thinking about. It could be something that is a question you're still pondering, but is there something that each one of you would like to leave listeners with? Because we could talk for hours, and I would love to have the three of you back to continue this conversation for sure. Scratching the surface of the dialogue.
2: I will go ahead and... Just sort of summarize where where I am in this conversation beyond leadership theorizing. So, including and beyond leadership theorizing, what I want to leave folks with is that whiteness is is something that is uh, is and has continued to create harm for everyone. And none of us can uh, can be authentic. None of us can be vulnerable. None of us can move forward fully right into and, and live into our full capacity. And so understanding that. And and again, everybody's harmed differently. And and there is possibility though, right? Even with that, there is possibility for growth, for movement, for healing, right? And because I'm looking at trauma and because I see whiteness as a form of trauma uh, that impacts us all, there is a possibility for us to to do better. Uh, It takes an investment of time, resources, and a lot, a lot of courage.
0: Yes. Yes. Missy?
3: I think the thing I would like to leave with is the need for the collective um, and not just the, we, sh- we started out the conversation talking about the, the kind of great white man theory and, and how limiting that is for the individuals who are trying to embody that, but also limiting for the organizations and the followers that are, are a part of that, that it, my research really sh- shed light on. A notion that I had not really seen in leadership theorizing, which is this this collective dimension. We use the you know the the notion that there's always there's space at the table or there's room at the table. Making room in leadership theory for a collective dimension. I think in the in the more practical sense, um, in our own organizations, it's making space for voices that too often are unheard. It's making space for the ways in which people bring their lived experience to their uh, organizational culture, and making sure that those experiences are ascribed equal value, and that that collective is valued as equally as that individual's ability. That we start to look at look at our organizations differently and think about all of the expertise that you know is contained within those spaces and where we've limited the ability of, of individuals to really be a part of building or growing or strengthening, the organizations themselves.
0: And so, well, limited the ability, right? Where have we unknowingly, sometimes unconsciously, limited the ability? Donna.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think what I need to say kind of bridges together is some of the things that Sharia said and I, Missy, the things Missy has said as well. And so one of the things that shocked me, I think really shock is the word, <laughs> As I started to look into theorization around whiteness itself, so this journey in, in writing this paper actually made me look at scholars who are looking at critical, there's a whole field called critical whiteness studies
0: now. Yeah, I didn't, I was not aware of that. Yeah, that was, yeah.
1: <laughs> and one of the things that comes through in a lot of that writing is, is a central idea within whiteness is the, the need for the creation of an abject other some other some another person who's somehow you know different that always creating that sense of different and distance between one and the other and when I started to look at and I guess that's also indicative of of a kind of notion of a zero-sum game like there's only so much power there's only so much wealth there's only and if I've got it you don't you know it's that kind of and I started to think about that. And then when I started to look at a lot of leadership theory, not just, not just Bass's notion, but other leadership theories in which we see this, this real distinction being made between leaders and followers. Yes. <laughs> you know? And it, suddenly I started getting this resonance of the abject other kind of echoing throughout leadership, the, the leadership canon And I think what, so what happens if we suddenly don't think of it in those terms? Mm. What if we don't need an abject other? What if we stop thinking about leaders and followers and start thinking about leadership as this collective endeavor?
0: Yes, yes. What's that word? Donna, say it on the Phronesis podcast right now. What's the word? (laughs) 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 Well, I I think about that a lot, right? Because it's such a false dichotomy. Yeah. Leader, follower. No, very few, very few elements are done in solo isolation. They are. It's not it's not a thing. no. (laughs) <laughs> so, but we've made, made it a thing. Be a
1: thing and maybe it's made to be a thing because like whiteness really hinges on that and then maybe leadership has kind of adopted a lot of these aspects of whiteness yeah. so if we unhinge that what then becomes possible
0: hmm. well my my final conclusion is something from the paper that really i mentioned to to the three of you really hit me Kind of over the head in a very positive way as I was reading the article. You all write the most obvious evidence of normalization within Bass's writings is the way in which leading by those other than whites is identified. For instance, in the 2008 preface, he writes Part seven concentrates on women and minorities as leaders, as well as leadership across countries and cultures. Previous editions concentrated on African Americans, but the fourth edition is expanded to examine leadership among many other minorities, ranging from what has become the largest group, Hispanics, to another large group, Italian Americans, for which less leadership literature exists. Here's your commentary. This is what hit me. In other words, the previous 874 pages written prior to Section 7, Diversity and Cultural Effects, actually describe white leadership. A mere 37 pages are focused on minorities as leaders and followers in a book which spans 1,208 pages. Although those pages are not, are not labeled, how leadership among white men occurs, <laughs> right? Oh, by calling out those other than white men, the norm of whiteness is silently established. Wow. That's, uh, it's powerful. It's very, very powerful. Uh, to, to the three of you, thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for elevating some very important concepts, how language can illuminate, but also hide how there's a lot underneath the words and how that uh, hurts and, and in many ways damages us all. Thank you so much. Missy, thank you for the work you do.
3: Thank you. Thank you. It was an honor to be here.
0: Donna, thank you for the work you do.
1: Thank you,
3: Scott. It's been a pleasure (laughs) actually
1: having a chance to to speak about it like this.
0: (laughs) And Sheree, thank you for the work you do.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate this opportunity.
0: Okay, everyone. Be well. I am uh, really thankful for the conversation with Donna, Sheree, and Missy. There's some things in that conversation that will stick with me. So the first thing is the the way language illuminates, but also hides. What's underneath the words? And another thing that really will forever stick with me is that every theory is serving some purpose. And do we want to align ourselves with that purpose? I think it's another just critical question that we have to ask ourselves, As we think about doing this work. So, to the three of you, thank you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your wisdom. Thanks for your expertise. Like I said in the podcast episode, I really look forward to continuing this conversation because I think it's an important one and I think it's critical to the evolution of our scholarship, our field. Be well, everyone. Take care. And thank you so much, as always. For checking in. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.